It's Friday, April 6th, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. The Delaware River flows from the Catskills in southern New York all the way down to Delaware Bay. Along the way, it's subject to a whole range of water quality impacts. Everything from deforestation and agricultural runoff in the corridor's more rural sections to stormwater issues in the big cities downstream and chronic groundwater depletion in between. The Delaware River Watershed Initiative is trying to take on all of those problems by bringing together dozens of watershed organizations across four states to focus on issues in their own backyards. Now, addressing a complex regional problem through coordinated on-the- ground action at the local level takes a lot of organizational capacity. And as it turns out, that's the kind of thing that Pennsylvania Environmental Council does pretty well. You know, PEC is kind of the glue that helps keep it all together and, again, keeps that uh, broader perspective that's not just the specific local community and local watershed, a, a bigger point of view. Launched in 2014 with funding from the William Penn Foundation, the DRWI just got a big boost earlier this week in the form of an additional $43 million commitment from William Penn to keep the initiative going another three years. On this episode, we'll learn about how the effort is playing out in the Philadelphia suburbs, where Peck is leading a collaboration of local groups, and also about our role going into Phase 2. But first, to get a better handle on the initiative's overarching goals and strategies across the entire Delaware River Basin, let's bring in Andrew Johnson. He's Watershed Program Director at William Penn and also an alumnus of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Andy, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Thank you, Josh. Just to bring us up to speed, lay out the backstory for us. How did this initiative get started? What were the initial goals and how have they evolved? Uh, Well, the, the initiative got started um, as the foundation thought about its environmental grant making in the whole Delaware watershed. So in 2012, the foundation expanded its grant making area, which previously had been basically the lower two thirds or lower half of the Delaware watershed. And in 2012, they made the decision, the, the family and the board made the decision to focus on the entire watershed because of the fact that it's a natural system and the opportunity with the scale of the grant making we can bring to bear, um, there was a sense that we could make a difference at the system-wide scale. The Delaware watershed lies within four states and historically since the passage of the Clean Water Act and probably before that, I guess, focused on their own streams and their own waterways within the watershed without, in most cases, thinking about the whole system. And although we have a really good uh, river basin commission, it has very limited authority, although it's important, but very limited authority and does not look at the system in the context of local land use decisions and even some of the other water-related policies that the four individual states adopt. Um, So one goal for us with the DRWI is to have the coordination of across the four states so that we can begin to compare apples to apples across New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware in terms of of progress, um, data related to monitoring, um, other other, uh, opportunities to compare that will indicate progress. So in thinking about how best to work at the full watershed scale, it was clear that we needed to target and prioritize, and our board and the 
Haas family wanted the work to be science-informed and data-driven. So that suggested picking priority places to work on priority issues. Uh, We're interested in protecting and restoring clean water, and at this scale, there are multiple challenges to clean water, threats to clean water. We selected four threats that in, in conversation, discussion with the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia and also the Open Space Institute, which we've been working with, we posed the question, how could our funds be used in places and on issues where we could actually make a difference? Um, so particularly in places where there might be a tipping point of some sort, where clean water, water is in good shape, but at risk of um, tipping into becoming impaired or impaired waters that are still, there's a chance to tip them into uh, being in better condition. So the Academy and Open Space Institute and National Fish and Wildlife Foundation helped us look at the whole watershed, think about issues to address. The foundation ended up focusing on four threats to water quality, loss of forests in the headwaters, agricultural runoff, stormwater, and depletion of groundwater, particularly in the Kirkwood-Cohansey Aquifer, which is under most of southern New Jersey. We have three different strategies for our grant making. The Delaware River Watershed Initiative was designed to be the program through which we provide capital and support for on-the-ground conservation. It's really about the support the foundation offers to land trusts and watershed associations and organizations such as PEC, which is sort of covers a, a slightly different niche, but is really more um, focused on on-the-ground implementation of change. And then the DRWI was deliberately structured to encourage science-informed decision-making by the organizations doing that on-the-ground conservation, and then collaboration among the participants, and then adaptive learning, particularly in the near term, so that all of the organizations participating in this on-the-ground conservation practice could really figure out ways to bring their work to scale over the longer haul. So this has been going on for a few years now. You talked about the science informing the decisions being made. What are we learning so far? What is the, uh, what is the research telling us, and how has that shaped the direction of the initiative? The research showed us, and the guidance that we got from the Academy of Natural Sciences, was that non-point source pollution threats to water quality are growing and spread across the whole watershed, And these kinds of threats are inherently local when you're thinking about solutions. The the solutions often have to do with land use um, by individual municipalities and the way individual farms are managed. And in both of those cases, the existing federal regulations, policies, don't get to that local level as effectively as one would hope. Um, But the organizations that are working together under the Delaware River Watershed Initiative have deep roots in local communities, and therefore we viewed that as um, a really important building block for building a network, a coordinated network of organizations working at that local scale so that the local work, rather than having isolated winds uh, spread across the, the watershed, we'd have some concentration of, of really significant conservation progress 
um, in the eight places that the Academy and the Open Space Institute and National Fish and Wildlife Foundation helped us to identify in the watershed. If we could focus in on some of the local, you know, local scale efforts you've been talking about, certainly with a, an area this large and with the the sort of profile of issues that you've identified to deal with, there is going to be as many examples as there are communities within the watershed. But I wonder if we could single out one or two and just talk about how this looks at the local level. Are there impacts that people are going to be seeing in their communities? Maybe people that aren't necessarily involved in their local watershed organization. What are they seeing in, in their communities? Yeah, that's a, it's a very good question. So I'll preface that by saying that if you think of the Delaware River Basin, it is one single basin, one single large watershed. And many people know that that large watershed actually contains many smaller watersheds. So there are are other watersheds at the scale of the Schuylkill River, the Lehigh River, um, for example, the Brandywine. And then even within those sub-watersheds are even smaller units. And what we've done with the Academy of Natural Sciences and other partners is to look at the the small one of the smallest watershed units, sub-watershed units, which is the way we're identifying the places to work. So when we're addressing these really broad, as you point out, issues that can be playing out in different ways in different communities across the watershed, by specifically identifying small sub-watersheds where we can measure the impact of any particular work on that small watershed, that's how we're arraying this work. So, for example, the work that the Pennsylvania Environmental Council is doing on upstream suburban Philadelphia, the, the cluster of subwatersheds there, um, focused on the Wissahickon, there are many places one could work, and, and 16 towns, I think, or something in that range of municipalities that um, the Wissahickon watershed lies within. What we've done, working with the participants, including Peck and Temple and, and others, um, is identify those small sub-watersheds within the Wissahickon and some other drainage areas um, where on the ground stormwater infrastructure, green stormwater infrastructure, for example, can or rain gardens can have an effect on the small sub-watershed. Um, so rather than just sort of rhetorically talking about the need for green stormwater infrastructure or rain gardens and then encouraging them everywhere, which is not a bad thing, but it's hard to measure the impact of that at that level, we're thinking about real sub-watersheds, small sub-watersheds, and then PEC and others are doing focusing on communities that touch those small sub-watersheds, so Jenkintown, for example, and Abington, the big news this week, obviously, is the $40 million plus, I think, in funding for phase two. What happens next with this initiative? What's a sort of turning point are we marking as we enter phase two? Well, the first phase, I think there was substantial progress at several levels. First of all, first and foremost, there were um, almost 20,000 acres of forests and forested buffers protected strategically in the watershed in these eight sub-watershed clusters. There was over 8,000 acres of restoration done, again, strategically in the subwatershed cluster. So that was an accomplishment that 60-plus organizations thinking together came up with these projects in these places 
that the science pointed to as being very important to address water quality. That set us up for the second phase where there was substantial collaboration that went into developing action plans for each of these eight sub-watershed clusters. Um, So there are teams in each of the eight places. The team in the upstream suburban Philadelphia cluster, for example, met, as the others did, to come up with specific places they wanted to work based on what they learned in the first four years and where they were having some success. And they decided some places they wouldn't continue to work, other places they'd they'd go deeper. Um, And then so for the second phase, over the next three years, they're funded uh, to do the -the on-the-ground work, which includes actual construction of restoration projects, outreach to municipalities, outreach to landowners, that kind of thing, in these highly strategic places that they've identified based on their action plan development over the last year. And now we're ready to just let it go for the next three years and really get out there and do the work on the ground. It's, I think, worth emphasizing the scale of this effort spanning very rural parts of Pennsylvania and and the other states involved through suburban and all the way up to the city of Philadelphia and, and surroundings. Is anything comparable to this happening in other regions of the country? Well, we, we had an evaluation, a third-party evaluation done of this work during the first phase of DRWI, and the independent evaluators said that this is nationally significant work at a scale that's not, where there aren't other places, other watersheds, where NGOs, non-governmental organizations are driving coordinated conservation work at this scale anywhere else in the country. There are other major watershed initiatives and programs in the Chesapeake, obviously, the Great Lakes on the West Coast in a number of places and, and in the West. But we think that this is a first of its kind that's largely comprised of, of NGOs, obviously working in concert with public agencies, but it's really about the coordination of the NGO work. And the other significant part of it is that it's not regulatory. So this is private sector driven Um, complementing regulations, obviously, and we rely on the uh, public policy frameworks, but it really is significant at that scale. And I think another distinguishing characteristic of this initiative is, you know, when when we first thought about doing this in 2012, 2013, we were looking at the lack of federal funding for restoration in particular compared to the Chesapeake watershed, which has a formal publicly funded program for the watershed and for good reason has lots of federal money that goes into the restoration projects in the Chesapeake watershed, including the Pennsylvania portions, a lot of state money too. We don't have an equivalent in the Delaware. So we initially were thinking four years ago, five years ago about are there ways we could attract more federal funds to our watershed, in addition to coordinating the work of strong organizations here. the way We sort of flipped, and now we're in a position where there's not likely to be major influxes of federal funds, although we just got $5 million for the Delaware River Basin Restoration Program, which is terrific. But it's unlikely that we there will be major federal efforts for watershed protection in the foreseeable future. But what we've ended up with is a locally driven 
tributary strategy, basically, where organizations working locally on landscapes, in landscapes and around tributaries that matter to those organizations and to the people who live there are now coordinating among themselves. So it's, it's this big strategy of lots of local work that translates up into coordination at the regional scale, which I think is a really important model for the Trump era. It's not federally driven, it's locally driven, but it still has gets up to a regional impact. I want to go back to what you were saying about the federal role, such as it is right now. Obviously, when this initiative was just getting going, I don't think anybody was really anticipating we would be in the climate that we're in now vis-a-vis the federal government. But it seems like we're seeing more and more happening at the state and regional and local level and NGOs picking up more of the burden. Do you see what's happening with DRWI as a a, a long-term future model if, you know, if, if we're looking at a future in which the feds are, are less involved or involved in a very different way than they have been in the past? Is this just sort of, is this a way to get through this moment that we're in? What happens an administration or two down the road? I think this is a, a model for the future, regardless of what happens in Washington. Um, when you think about a complex watershed like the Delaware that is comprised of these um, small sub-watersheds, many sub-watersheds. It can be overwhelming to think about how short of buying every acre of forest that remains, how do you begin to understand where it's most important to concentrate work? I think that coming from the sort of the local up, bottom up, we're in a position to think more effectively about on-the-ground work in those specific sub-watersheds and I don't envision the federal government ever getting reaching down to that level. It would be great to have more funding to support local work in the future. But, I mean, my basic answer is the federal role is essential. The, the laws that are on the books are essential. So we, if there's backtracking or retrenchment on the laws on the books, that would be a real challenge and problem. But even absent adding new policies or new funding programs on top of what we have. The DRWI model, I think, is something that will get us through this time, but then create, I think, changes in the field, changes in practice where there is more collaboration, where there's more use of science and technology modeling to really target where work happens, understanding that often it has to be opportunistic as well. But to the extent that PEC and others can use modeling, for example, to better understand which municipalities and where which municipalities in the Wissahickon or Pennypack watersheds, for example, might be worth emphasizing doing the outreach, local outreach, to try to get them to, um, the municipalities to develop their own stormwater policies, writ large across 65 organizations working in across the watershed, I think will have a tremendously positive impact over time regardless of who's in Washington, it would be tremendously enhanced if there were funding and federal cooperation on top of that. But it's not, um, it's something that could survive and do well in either case. You've really been underscoring, I think rightly, work happening at the local level, work being done by and in cooperation with other 
groups, uh, smaller organizations that are all involved in, in DRWI. But William Penn plays a really pivotal role, I think, not just in terms of funding all these efforts, but kind of in coordinating everything. How do you approach that challenge of working with, with so many players, so many stakeholders uh, spread out over such a wide geographic area? What's your role? So the reason that we have the kinds of strategies we have is that we, we are a regional funder and we're here for the long haul and we have a substantial grant-making budget which suggests that we have lots of organizations that we support. The, the foundation's very interested in aggregating the impact of individual grants. So we're interested in using our grant-making to catalyze change and it's pretty clear that by aggregating and aligning work that's the best way from our perspective to catalyze bigger change. I think that a lot of the work that we're doing is reflective of the approach Peck often brings to its work which is working collaboratively using science and having effective local outreach to try to achieve something at a larger scale. And so I think it's, it's terrific having Peck as a significant partner in all of this work. Andrew Johnson is a manager of the Watershed Protection Program, a program director, I should say, for the William Penn Foundation. He also put in some time at the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Andrew, thanks again for your time today. It was nice talking with you. Good talking to you, Josh. Thank you. Of course, PEC has an important role to play in the DRWI from its inception and uh, particularly moving into phase two. Pennsylvania Environmental Council is leading the upstream suburban Philadelphia collaboration of groups uh, that are focusing on upstream issues in the Philadelphia area, as the name might suggest. Patrick Starr is PEC's executive vice president, and Susan Myrov is our program uh, director for the Watersheds program, and they join me now to talk a little bit more about how the second phase of DRWI will play out uh, in the Philadelphia area with PEC and our partners uh, at the helm. Hi, guys. Hey, Josh. How you doing? Hi, Josh. Let me start with you, Sue. Uh, talk a little bit about what's unique about about your part of the state and where it fits into the bigger picture of the the DRWI region, the Delaware watershed. Uh, What are some of the challenges you're dealing with? What kind of approaches have you taken thus far in addressing them along with the other partners? So, Josh, our our, uh, collaborative is one of eight um, different collaboratives across the Delaware River watershed basin. And as the name implies, upstream suburban Philadelphia are communities upstream of the city of Philadelphia. So we're in a highly urbanized uh, area of the state and of the watershed basin. Um, Our collaborative uh, area includes five watersheds that are hydrologically separated, but all flow um, into the city of Philadelphia, but they start out in the suburbs. Uh, Those watersheds include the Quessing, the Pennypack, the Tuckanee Tacony Frankfurt, uh, the Wissahickon, and the Cobbs. So we have four, uh, five watersheds. Uh, our collaborative also includes two of our very esteemed academic institutions that we've been working with for many years: uh, Temple University and Villanova University. So we have a, a quite a quite a team. Um, the region, uh, as it might imply, being very highly urbanized, has. Um, suffered from uh, unmanaged stormwater uh, into uh, many of these communities, and therefore we have uh, flooding issues, and we also have 
uh, pollution issues in our streams and rivers. Uh, and this is a particular concern because uh, many of our streams and rivers are the source of um, our drinking water, both in Philadelphia and in the region. So um, what we've been trying to do is deal with uh, how to reverse some of this degradation uh, through means including things like green stormwater infrastructure where we try to mimic uh, natural uh, processes through a lot of different interventions. Um, that includes everything from naturalizing our, our lawns to in, installing green roofs. So uh, we're working with uh, lots of different partners and lots of municipalities in this, uh, in this collaborative area. Uh, we have 35 municipalities and about um, 400,000 populations. So it's very dense and there's lots of uh, municipalities to work with, lots of communities. Josh, I always like to say that we have the people, whereas some of our upstream uh, neighbors, when I say upstream there, I mean in northeastern Pennsylvania. Way northern, upstream. Yeah, way upstream. Northern Jersey, even uh, uh, the Catskills in New York, they have the trees. So right. what that means is they have the clean water and we have the dirty water. Uh, another way to think about the eight different geographic areas within the DRWI is that each one represents a kind of experiment. Um, by groups, there are several experiments in conservation, which is saying that the area is, is reasonably clean, the water is reasonably clean, and we're trying to keep it that way. And then several others are experiments in restoration, and in our case, it's urban degradation, if you will, and in a couple of the other uh, watershed areas, it's agricultural degradation. But what brings us all together is that we're experimenting in our respective areas and we're reporting back to each other so that we're learning at the same time that we're actually making on the ground improvements. Uh, you know, thousands of acres of land have been protected in some of those more rural parts of the Delaware River watershed. Meanwhile, we're installing stormwater management and in the middle Schuylkill, they're installing, and in the Brandywine, they're installing agricultural um, you know, BMPs on people's farms to manage different types of pollution. But we're all learning from each other. Well, and along those lines, this strikes me as a very peck kind of approach getting all of these stakeholders together. And as you mentioned, it's it's quite a diverse collection of stakeholders. I'm wondering, well, what does it mean for PEC to be in a leadership role in this in this multifaceted effort? And how does that fit with you know PEC's mission and our larger goals as an organization? Well, it fits quite well, Josh. I mean, <laughs> you know, our mission is to protect and restore Pennsylvania's environment. And so there's an element of work that's actual on-the-ground restoration. So within our upstream uh, watersheds, we've actually seen, we've facilitated, together with our partners, almost $5 million in green stormwater infrastructure projects. And those run the gamut from uh, essentially wetland creation um, on, a, on a site known as College Settlement to um, residential-scale rain gardens installed in in some of the in some communities uh, almost on a um, volunteer basis where neighbor is helping neighbor actually each one helping the other to create rain gardens so there's a very physical dynamic at the same time it's very 
PEC-like in that it's stakeholders who are working together. Sue mentioned earlier a couple of universities, but actually we also have then five or six watershed and land trust organizations that are cooperating in this as well. So it's diverse. And then meanwhile, we are also working with all those local governments. And we're not coming into the local governments saying you're bad. We're saying we need to do this together. So, you know, PEC's old adage is, you know, conservation through cooperation. So the object here is that we work together to find solutions. You know, and these are real problems in these communities. These communities have flooding. Uh, there are people whose homes are threatened, whose property is eroding. Um, you know, these creeks are the recreation area for the residents in the upstream communities. And so they're very concerned about improving their water quality. So there's a lot of aspects of this that are very much the way Peck does business. Oh, and I would even add science-based. You know, the idea that we have universities actually doing research to basically enhance and improve the project. So we had a site that's been monitored for, I think, two years and maybe three. But the point is we now have data that's actually already come forth that suggests some possible improvements to the actual infrastructure and meanwhile demonstrates that there have been real downstream water quality benefits from the installation of a very sizable rain garden um, at the Abington Friends School in, uh, in the Jenkintown Creek. So it's really very much the way PEC does business. Uh, Sue, I know that you you're not only a resident of the watershed, but you're you're closely involved in your local watershed organization. I thought maybe you'd be able to offer some perspective on what this looks like, as you say, at the ground level. You know, forty million dollars, four states, uh, you know, sixty-five plus organizations is very high level. What does this look like on the ground in your community? Uh, that's a great question, uh, Josh. I, I I live in Abington Township, which is uh, actually, um, part of several of our focus areas for phase two, uh, but the Jenkintown Creek, which we just talked about, uh, which is part of the Tukany, uh Creek watershed, um, it's also one that flows uh, through our township. And uh, I actually live uh, at one of the um, uh, the headwaters creeks uh, along the Jenkintown. But the the TTF Watershed Partnership, one of our our partners, has initiated several projects on the Jenkintown Creek affiliated with Abington Friends School. Uh, there's, uh, their creek runs along in their school property, so it was a perfect way to work with academic partners, school partners. Uh, there was an incredible amount of work uh, there to um, do some stream bank stabilization, uh, add some uh, rain gardens and, and riparian buffer projects. And these this allowed us to do some great work on the ground, involve students, their parents, the community, um, so it's it's something that really highlighted the impacts of the uh, DRWI work in a very specific location and certainly something that I'm very familiar with being a, a resident of the township. Um, I also wanted to mention that the, the resources that have really become available through this initiative not only allowed us to, to start these projects, but also to have some really intensive monitoring uh, so we have some high-level monitoring going on in some of these areas to really understand the changes going on. 
Um, and particularly at the, uh, at the school, they now have a, a new weather station and all kinds of instrumentation to have us uh, really learn about what, what we're doing. So um, I think also in other parts of the township, uh, one of the other watersheds uh, that flows through Abington is the Wissahickon um, and the Sandy Run specifically, and that is a focus area for phase two. And that's um, uh, uh, you know, an area, again, where we, we have several parks and we're, they're working a lot with the, the Wissahickon Valley Watershed Association and Abington Township's Park and Rec Department, uh, along with uh, members of the Environmental Advisory Council, of which I am also a part of. So this hits me from a lot of different perspectives. And so I can see the benefits of the work. I see how more people are now engaged and that we are, we are making some strides in, in really improving conditions of these streams. Well, Josh, you know, Sue is very modest, and since I know her well and her work well, I'll just mention that another thing that would bring this right back home to Abington Township is that PEC provides training that Sue actually um, has designed that relates to their the municipal, um, what's called an MS4 permit, and specifically there's requirements there that are called municipal good housekeeping and Sue has actually done workshops that employees and staff at Abington Township have participated in, as well as township employees from throughout the upstream area. But it, it kind of circles all the way back around. Here's a resident of Abington Township actually providing training that's impacting the practices on a day-to-day basis of township employees. So, Josh, you know, Peck's role in all of this has been to coordinate this uh, herd of cats, you know, the proverbial herding cats. We have the second largest watershed group. So there are 10 organizations counting the universities we've mentioned uh, and all of our other, we call them watershed partners. So it's not very glamorous on some level because we just have to make the meetings happen and keep track of our progress. And one of the things about this, this initiative is there's lots of measurements and metrics and reports that you have to file. But I think in terms of, of what does PEC bring to the table, you know, we bring a, a, a wider perspective, a deep understanding of the state's MS4 program, which relates very much to what, the, what we're doing w- within our collaborative at the upstream uh, suburban wa- uh, watersheds. Um, so there's a regulatory component of this, a tie-back to uh, DEP's regulations, and PEC understands that very well. And we're also able to communicate about what's happening at the local level to the central office of DEP as well as the southeast regional office of DEP. So we provide a lot of that connection for our cluster. We also work at the entire um, scale of the watersheds. So Sue has mentioned that there's five hydrologically separate watersheds. And in fact, our watershed group is actually physically uh, separated from each other. But for instance, in partnership with um, some of the commercial entities in the watershed, um, there's an association, maybe Sue, you can help me here. It's the International Facilities Management Association, uh, sometimes called IFMA. You know, so IFMA, you know, has been a, we've been working with IFMA to actually educate 
uh, the managers of shopping centers, um, of suburban office parks and, and other large institutional facilities so that they better understand the impacts of their properties on the creeks in our, in our area. So we're actually trying to help them develop new green stormwater infrastructure investments for their sites. So again, we bring this overarching aspect and then I'm going to go one step further. You know, we also are coordinating the communications for the, the watershed group. So, you know, one of the things we've not done in phase one that we're going to be doing in phase two is actually coordinating um, announcements about um, ribbon cuttings and groundbreakings on new infrastructure. We're going to be promoting our uh, in-stream um, volunteer stream watchers. We're going to be promoting cleanups. We're going to try to create more of, a, of, an, of an actual visibility for the upstream suburban Philadelphia group of watersheds. So all of that's being done by PEC. It's actually a lot of work. <laughs> that's true. There's a lot of different components to the phase two work. I like to look at it as uh, working from the, the bottom up, which is our our residents and, and, and building those advocates at the residential level. And then also from the top down, making sure our, our municipal elected officials understand um, the value of this work and how their their everyday decisions can have an impact on uh, water quality and 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 stormwater. So we try to provide that perspective and then sort of collaborate and organize our our, our partners around those kinds of issues. Something else that we've done, Josh, just to wrap up, uh, you know, there are what we call um, regional stakeholders who also need to be kept informed about what we're doing and. Some of the obvious ones, again, I've mentioned like the Department of Environmental Protection, but then there's PennDOT, which has roads and highways through these communities. Um, there's uh, the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority, SEPTA, that has routes and facilities throughout our watershed. Um, so there are other entities that we have brought together and they serve as, well, we keep them informed we also try to work with them to develop project opportunities. So there's, a, you know, PEC is kind of the glue that helps keep it all together. Um, and again, keeps that uh, broader perspective that's not just the specific local community and local watershed, a, a bigger point of view. Patrick Starr, Executive Vice President of PEC, and Susan Myrov is Program Director for Watersheds. Thanks so much for your time today, guys, and congratulations on phase two. We're excited. Thanks, Josh. And that's the show for this Friday, April 6th. Join us two weeks hence for the next episode of Pennsylvania Legacies. In the meantime, you can get caught up on past episodes at peckpa.org slash audio. But one quick note before we go, Earth Day is coming up in just a couple of weeks. And if you're anywhere near Clearfield County, or maybe you know someone who is, Here's a great way to celebrate Earth Day weekend. You can join PEC and our partners Friday, April 20th, or Saturday the 21st, or both days, why not, as we get together to plant more than 3,000 trees in the Meshannon State Forest. 
This is a brand new event that builds on the success of our existing volunteer-driven reforestation program in mostly northeastern Pennsylvania. And by the way, we are planting trees again this year in Weiser and Pinchot State Forests over in that part of the state. There is already a great community of volunteers in place for those locations where events have been held for the last two years. But right now, where we really need help is in the Moshannon Forest, the new location uh, just off I-80, about an hour's drive from State College. We'll provide the equipment and lunch is on us, too. We just ask that you take a moment to let us know you're coming so we can get an accurate headcount. To do that, head over to the website again. It's peckpa.org slash moshannon. I'll spell that out. It's M-O-S-H-A-N-N-O-N, peckpa.org slash moshannon. Or you can navigate through the events calendar to April 20th and 21st when these events are taking place. As always, we'll link in the show notes. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to legacies at pacpa.org by email again, legacies at pacpa.org. Connect with us on Facebook, follow our Twitter feed at pacpa, and visit our website. One more time, the address is pecpa.org. For the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>